You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, Ever Merciful. Dear listeners, welcome to the Breakfast Show on the Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Mubarak Zamini, and uh, today I have with me um, my co-host, Brother Daniel Ahmed. Um, in this show, we will um, explore, examine, discuss, and talk about the first segment, which is Afghanistan earthquake. The third earthquake hits western region in a week, followed by the second segment, bridging the gap, our robotics and AI are reshaping the NHS. But dear listeners, before we head towards the segments, um, as usual, we will continue with the news for the first 20 minutes of the of the show, and then we will go into the segments. Uh, Daniel, assalamualaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Waalaikum assalam. Alhamdulillah. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, on you as well. How are you doing today? Um, I'm good. Um, but um. Uh, yeah, I wasn't feeling well uh, for the past two or oh. three days. Not that really sick, but yeah, kind of... You haven't brought anything little, into the studio today, have you? Li- a little headache, yeah. That's right, a, just a headache, okay, that's yeah. fine. I can manage the headache. <laughs> how was your um, routinely way into the studio? How's the weather? How are you feeling? I mean, um, uh, if... It's a, it's a bit dry today, Um Compare, yeah. I mean, compared never, to the last couple never of days. Know, you never know, there are a bit, a bit of clouds. Um, just uh, Yeah, maybe on the way home you're going to get a, a bit of a splash. Yeah, so... But it's, yeah, it's, it's, a bit, it's getting a bit chilly now compared to before. Yeah, um, it is. You can see I'm wearing, you know, v yeah, wearing a turtleneck so, as yeah. well. the latest forecast for um, the UK today. Sunshine and isolated showers in northern Scotland. Cloudy for most further south with some showers but outbreaks of showery rain will push into southwestern areas later in the afternoon tonight cloud and heavier spells of rain will move north along with strengthening winds dry clear and chilly in the far north further showery outbreaks of rain in central and southern areas tomorrow rain will spread further northeast along with strengthening easterly cl- winds Strong southwesterly winds in the south, with scattered blustery showers for many, with mostly cloudy skies. Thursday looks to be uh, a a stormy day, with severe gales in the south and showers and spells of rain for much of the UK. Drier in the far northwest, less windy, some showers and variable cloud can be expected on Friday. On Saturday. A new deep low will bring spells of heavy rain to the south with gale force southwesterlies. Patches of cloud with some showers to the north. So Daniel, be ready. Have your umbrella out as well with you. Wear your raincoat and, 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 and be ready for the next couple <laughs> yeah. of days that we're going to see. I don't know. I have, I have lost my umbrella. I can't find it at home. So might be somewhere. Yeah, might, might, might be wise to uh, invest into one again. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, moving on to today's headline headlines. The newspaper headlines start with Israeli soldier hostage freed and XPM's decision made it impossible to fight COVID. 
The fate of Israeli hostages in Gaza and the latest revelations from the COVID inquiry are the main news stories leading Tuesday's front pages. The Daily Mail focuses on what it calls chilling footage released by Hamas on Monday of three Israeli women the group is holding hostage. The paper reports PM Benjamin Net- Netanyahu's comments that the video constitutes psychological torture and notes that Israel, Israel's offensive on Gaza is intensifying. Tuesday's mm-hmm. uh, front page of the I newspaper covers the rescue of an Israeli soldier from Gaza. As well as a landmark day in the COVID inquiry, the paper says that a top civil servant accused Boris Johnson of being unable to lead during the pandemic. The Metro's front page <coughs> tells the story of a Yorkshire couple who got swept into the sea only to be miraculously pushed back on land by a wave. The paper says more rain is predicted to batter Britain when storm Syrian hits later this week. Mm-hmm. And The Guardian focuses on comments made by Israeli PM Benjamin Netanyahu who ruled out implementing a ceasefire with Hamas in a news conference on Monday. Instead, declaring that this is a time for war, the paper also reports that Israeli joy at the rescue of one of its soldiers from Gaza was tempered by the release of a Hamas video of three other captives. The Sun says that Portuguese police have finally apologised to Madeleine McCann's parents for how they handled the case of their missing daughter when she disappeared in 2007. Hmm. According to the Times, civil servants recommended that the government exclude the Israeli PM from a major AI summit due to take place at Bletchley Park later this week over Israeli's invasion of Gaza and fears that Benjamin Netanyahu's appearance would overshadow the tech gathering. The paper also says that the foreign land and science and technology secretaries were angered by this suggestion and rejected it. The Daily Telegraph also focuses on the rescue of an Israeli hostage in Gaza. The paper reports on the latest developments in the Israel-Hamas war and says that Western leaders have launched a diplomatic offensive on Middle Eastern states in an attempt to prevent the conflict from spreading further. Mm. The Financial Times focuses on the news that the head of accounting giant PwC's advisory business is set to become its um, its next global chair. The paper also goes over Monday's COVID inquiry hearing in which disparagraphing uh, WhatsApp messages sent by senior civil servants at the start of the pandemic were laid bare. The Daily Mirror's front page is about the latest revelations in the COVID inquiry. The paper says that Boris Johnson's most senior advisers were critical of the then PM's decisions during the pandemic and that they thought the government was a tragic joke. Hmm. The Israeli PM has ruled out a ceasefire, the Daily Express reports, saying that Benjamin Netanyahu stated that this is a time for war when asked whether he would consider a truce in Gaza.
The Daily Star reports that scientists have spotted an infrared aurora on Uranus that could find that could help find alien life. The latest on the Israeli hostages in Gaza and revelations from the COVID inquiry led Tuesday's front pages. The Times says foreign office civil servants wanted to exclude Israel's prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu from this week's summit on artificial intelligence in Bletchley Park. The paper says the officials believed that after the start of the Israeli ground offensive in Gaza, his address via a video link could be a distraction. However, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly and Science and Technology Secretary Michelle Donnellan were angered by the advice and rejected it, the paper says. The Israeli soldier Ori Megidish, who has been reunited with her family after being held captive by Hamas for three weeks, features on several front pages. The Daily Telegraph thinks her rescue is a significant victory for Mr Netanyahu, who is facing questions about his decision to launch a ground invasion of Gaza while hostages remain trapped. The Guardian highlights his words that this is a time for war and not for a ceasefire. Pawns of, of the terrorists is the Daily Mail's front page headline. The paper describes as vile the video released by Hamas in which three Israeli women held in Gaza urged Mr Netanyahu to secure their release by freeing Palestinian prisoners. The I newspaper says doctors in Gaza are having to amputate patients' limbs, even when it should not be necessary because they don't have the resources to treat their injuries. The head of Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City, Bashar Murad, told the paper that doctors now treated only those who had a chance to survive. In an editorial entitled Lock Them Up, The Sun says that Islamic terror will erupt in Britain as long as hate-filled extremism goes unpunished. The paper claims that in some mosques, imams openly glorify the slaughter of 1,400 Jews, while what it calls pro-Hamas thugs call for genocide on our streets and online. Several papers report that the entrepreneur Elon Musk will attend the Prime Minister's Summit on Artificial Intelligence. The Mail says that's a significant scoop for Rishi Sunak after several world leaders turned down an invitation. The Daily Mirror leads on what it calls the explosive WhatsApp messages released to the COVID inquiry. In one of them, the Cabinet Secretary accuses Boris Johnson of making the government look like a tragic joke. If you thought the government was incompetent and dishonest during the pandemic, says the paper, turns out you were right. Daniel, looking at the um, headlines, mm. um, there's a lot of instability, in, unfortunately, going around in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the most we, we can do as human beings is um, keep those people that are vulnerable, that are going through mm. hardships at the moment, keep them in our thoughts and pray for them as well. So that may God the Almighty um, bring around peace. <coughs> and if we follow the, the words of the, the Caliph, um, mm. as he's, he's, he's pushing towards peace between uh, countries, mm. um, maybe, maybe heed to, to, to his words of wisdom. Mm. Certainly, you know, also a press release was, you know, published in the past few days of uh, His Holiness, you know, where he 
uh, emphasized people, especially MD Muslims, mm. to um, to pray for the world in general and to pray for the Muslims um, specifically. And uh, in his last Friday sermon, um, His Holiness uh, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad uh, has urged uh, to in- intensify prayers and raise awareness against oppression uh, amidst uh, the growing escalation of the ongoing conflict um, in the Holy Land and said that given the current state of the world, uh, I am once again drawing attention to the importance of prayer. Uh, the conflict between Hamas and Israel is intensifying, resulting in an increasing number of innocent Palestinian women and children being martyred. With the pace at which the situation of war is escalating and the policies being apparently adopted by the Israeli government and major global powers, it seems as if a world war now looms larger before us. Now even the leaders of certain Muslim countries are openly stating as have Russia and China and similarly Western um, analysts have begun to write and proclaim that the scope of this war seems to be broadening. If immediate wisdom-based policies are not adopted, the world will face devastation. All of this is being reported in the news. All of you can see the circumstances. Therefore, MDs must must pay special attention to prayers. We must not become complacent at the very least. One prostration, you know, he specifically uh, put uh, stress or an emphasis on that point mm. as well, that at least one prostration, one sajda, uh, during every prayer, salat, or at the minimum in one of the prayers should be dedicated to mm. this cause while supplicating during it. So, it's kind of, you know, uh, he has given a task, you can say, or, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's rather, I would say, it's an obligation of a Muslim yeah. to pray for it's, uh, for for his or her fellow beings as well. So furthermore, he, he states that no leader from the Western world from any country wants to deal with this matter uh, justly, nor do they possess the courage to speak about it. Ahmadis should not get embroiled in debates about which country's prime minister or leader is good and which is not, or in discussions about who should or should not have said something or whether Muslims should or should not speak against someone. These are all futile matters until someone bravely strives for a ceasefire. They are invariably responsible for pushing the world towards destruction. Hence, in your respective circles and along with your prayers, strive to spread, strive to spread the message of stopping oppression. If any Hamdi has connections, explain to the, this to them. This is real courage and it is the standard of acting upon God Almighty. Furthermore, he states, um, he says that our love for the for the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, demands that we pray intensely for Muslims. May Allah grant us the ability to do so and also to the Muslims and may he bestow wisdom upon the world. I mean, so... 
I just kept it short and but uh, in in precise briefly he said that we need to pray um especially he he you know he told the muslim and the muslims to pray for their fellow beings their muslim brothers and uh, also for the world peace as well in general uh with this um uh, just one more thing i think i would like to share as well and yes. uh, that is i just uh, you know um many of us you know they would like to have interaction with nature as well i i believe that so uh, recently um a new documentary series of david attenborough has released okay yeah planet earth 3 so i uh, just uh, on the weekend i watched uh, the first episode um it's called cost i mean you each time you you see the uh, nature related uh, mm. documentaries uh, you know they are kind of full of surprises for you uh, uh, you can't say that i have watched that specific documentary and that's it uh, i'm just aware of all the species mm. all the animals or no, fishes yeah. around <laughs> the world <laughs> you know uh, each time you just um, you are just um, just came to know a new different species or different kind of animal so this time you know uh there were some few points or new information which you know uh, came to me uh, which were new to me and um you know uh there was one specific uh point when they were filming in rajampat which is a very beautiful uh, island on uh, on the coast of um i believe in indonesia okay and uh, they were filming there and there's one specific fish and you know um how you know it's very very weird uh, or interesting i would say that mm-hmm. the way it uh, catches its prey okay so um, it just come on the top of on the surface of the, of the ocean, ocean okay and it um, gathers the water in his mouth or fills the water uh fills the, his mouth with his with the water and it splashes the water towards the insect which is sitting on on top of leaves okay and and it can splash um precisely 2 meters i i believe wow um through the surface of the of the water and that insect drops into the water and it you know just eats it and it's, it's, well, yeah, it's amazing yeah amazing nature is amazing and and no matter how much we see of it yeah we're always flabbergasted at something new literally, that we see literally yeah and there's one more uh, fish it's very very little small tiny fish mm. and you can literally see its stomach is so much transparent mm. and you can see that stomach which is glowing and you know kind of very orangish kind of these, stomach these, these are god's creations yeah and you, you can literally see when you know it uh, it's some something yeah it's going through through his mouth to his stomach um, yeah it's kind of very you know mind boggling i would say that um one last um, news headline that i'd like to share is Police in the central of Japanese city of Toda have responded to reports of a shooting at a hospital. Local media report: two people were reportedly wounded 
A doctor is in his 40s and a patient in his 60s, reports say. The suspect fled via motorcycle to the neighbouring city of Warabi and has reportedly taken hostage inside a post office, the city said on its website. He is of medium build and possibly in his 40s or 50s, it said. Facilities nearby have been placed on, on lockdown. Shooting incidents are extremely rare in Japan. The country has strict gun ownership rules and only allows civilians to own hunting rifles and airguns. People must undergo a strict exam and mental health tests in order to buy a gun in Japan. This breaking news story is being updated and more details will be pl- published shortly. Uh, dear listeners, do pray for those that are um, currently going through hardships. Um, and and uh, we will gonna be regarding such people who are affected indeed. by the earthquakes as well so yeah we should you know uh, remember such people in our thoughts and um, we should pray for not for only for them but also for their families as well who are you know uh, have to face uh, such difficulties definitely as well. um dear listeners do stay with us uh, we're going to um we're going to go for a short break and uh, w- once we come back do join us for the first uh, for the first segment Allahu akbar Allahu akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Auzu billahi min ash-shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious and Merciful, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Dear listeners, welcome back to the Breakfast Show at the Voice of Islam Radio. Um, in the next segment, we'll be be discussing um, Afghanistan earthquakes. The third earthquake hits western region in a week. Um Daniel for the listeners if you could kindly just explain the <coughs> gist of the story. Yeah sure so the gist of the story is that a series of uh, powerful earthquakes has struck western Afghanistan um with the latest measuring 6.3 in magnitude near Herat. So um, Herat is a province as well and um, a city as well. So this marks the third significant uh, tremor in the region within a week within a week and um, tragically around 3000 people uh, lost their lives in the in the preceding quakes uh, predominantly women and children and uh, you know it kept on intensifying the challenges uh, faced by this area 
um, already uh, grappling with you know uh, economic hardships and the onset of colder weather as well as the winter is approaching as well and in specifically in those areas where it's uh, kind of very mountainy areas uh, where the weather uh, cold weather approaches uh, very quickly as well and uh, so as of um, um, 18th November um, uh, by the 18th November um, a fourth earthquake uh, has struck the country in a week so that's the gist of the story three earthquakes you know it don't allow you to you know mentally even after the first earthquake you you are not mentally prepared mm. and uh, you know not settled and in the second and the third earthquake also ha- had hit the the area mm. and um, it's very quite challenging for them as well well the three powerful earthquakes um the half shock you mentioned were mm. near herat yeah the first one on on 7th of october yeah 6.3 magnitude the first earthquake, earthquake yeah uh, struck western afghanistan mm. the epicenter was in zindajan yeah 40 kilometers northwest of herat city mm. the second earthquake again at 6.3 magnitude was just 14 kilometers southeast mm. of the epicenter and happened on 11th of october Mm. Um the third earthquake took place on 15th of October. As of 18th of October, a fourth earthquake had struck with over 90% of victims being women and mm. children. That's alarming as well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very worrying and it's very it's, it's very hurtful as well at the same time. Yeah. Unfortunately, women and children uh, accounted for the majority of deaths due to being at home at the time of the uh, earthquakes as they um occurred uh, in the middle of the day. I mean we have you know um, also seen uh, one of the deadliest and strongest uh, earthquakes um, earlier this year as well in Turkey and Syria indeed and where you know uh, more than 50 59 uh, 60000 people um, died in that earthquake mm-hmm. as well and um, again uh, also we have also seen one of um, another earthquake in Morocco as well where also around 3000 people um, died as well So yeah we need to also uh keep uh, such people uh who died in such earthquakes so or, or their families as well we should keep them in our thoughts and prayers Indeed. and um may god you know uh, be uh, their helper as well and uh, uh, you know um uh, as um, mobile has mentioned that uh, nearly 3000 people are reported to have been um um killed um or died um, moreover uh, over 9000 people are injured uh, across 11 villages of um Zindajan district uh, you know i was just going through wikipedia what um uh, Zindajan means and it's very uh, you know interesting to know the um etymology of zindajan is that it means that um one single soul and it says that there was a, a period of uh, there was a period that when only one soul used to live there but um we will continue with this conversation but right now we have with us our first guest of the show um professor richard walker Um Richard Walker is a professor of active 
Tectonics at the Department of Earth Sciences, University of Oxford. For over 20 years, he has studied earthquakes with emphasis on the mountains, mountainous regions from Iran to China. Uh, Professor, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning and peace be on you. It's a real pleasure to be with you today, as always. Thank you. So, Professor, for our listeners, uh, could you kindly explain uh, the the significance of Herat regarding the tectonic plate and moments, uh, movements? And um, uh, also, you know, that uh, earthquake came um, recently in that area, also regarding its activity in the area as well. Sure, sure. So, so on the, the, at a very large scale, you you have you have two things going on. Um, to the east, you have the gradual slow motion of, of, of India, which is which is moving northwards and, and, and colliding into um, the interior of, of, of Asia, driving up big mountain ranges such as the Himalaya, the Tibetan Plateau, the Tian Shan Mountains. And to the west, you have um, the the northward motion of, of Arabia, uh, which is also colliding with with the interior of, of, of um, Asia and Europe, and uh, you know, driving up mountain ranges that we see in um, in, in Iran and um, uh, Turkey and and, and and the regions further north. Hmm. So Afghanistan finds itself in the middle of those two, right? So as you go to the eastern parts of Afghanistan, Kabul, um, you have wide earthquake zones which are which are related to you know, that, that motion between India and, and, and Asia. We have a number of of large historical earthquakes known. You know, Kabul in, in 1505, Quetta in Pakistan in, in, in 1935, all of them are related to to this uh, India Asia mm. story. As we go further west, um, we see more of the influence of the Arabia Eurasia collision um, and and this is Causing earthquakes that, that that stretch across Iran. Much of Iran is is, is uh, you know an earthquake zone, um, and also we see um, earthquakes you know, further north, uh, Azerbaijan, the Caucasus, uh, and also into uh, places such as Turkmenistan and and um, in western parts of Afghanistan, Herat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and there is. Historic records of, of, of earthquakes in Herat, so in, in both in the Middle Ages, medieval times, and and also in the 1930s, there was an earthquake. So you know, it, it, it's known, and it's it's kind of related to these things that are actually happening quite far away, right? Mm-hmm. So Arabia, we think of as you know, a thousand kilometers or more, um, but the way that the continents deform, it's not along a single line. It, it happens over a big, wide crumble zone, right? Mm-hmm. So. The effects of that Arabia collision, uh, you know, can be seen in, in terms of earthquakes and the growth of mountains thousands of kilometers away. Hmm, yeah, uh, Professor, could you explain to, to for our viewers uh, the impact these earthquakes could potentially have on an area, uh, on an area with uh, with an already fragile economy? Yeah, sure, sure. So I mean, these are these are really kind of tragic events happening. Hmm in this area that has been impacted um over over several years and especially one thing has been by 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 droughts and and, and other kind of long running uh, natural disasters so it's um 
it's um, it's uh, a, a big event, a large loss of life that's occurring on um, on, on on a population that was already quite vulnerable to um, disasters. I think one other thing to note is not you know only in terms of of, of that existing fragility, but the fact that the the disaster is not something that just happens when the earthquake happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we see loss of life, and I you know, believe the loss of life was, was well over a thousand um, people. But also, it's the many, many people who have been bereaved, have lost their homes, um, who are traumatized by these events. Yeah. And we're heading into wintertime. Um, and we have many people lacking shelter. Um, and so we have a story that unfolds over, over many months and, and in, in fact years. I think it's important for, in terms of aid and relief that these um, disasters are not forgotten. Right? It's very easy. You see these things in the news, right? And, you know, mm. we have all the news stories. And then within a matter of days, it fades from the news, right? Okay, the relief work is finished. But actually it's not. There's, there's a long-term need for rebuilding, for aid, for shelter, for you know, helping people who have been put into this horrible situation. Hmm. So could you, you know, um, Professor, give suggestions um, as to what countries that are more prone to earthquakes um uh, you know, we have talked about uh, you have talked about um, the Middle Eastern countries as well as well the Asian countries like India and Afghanistan. Uh, but um, in general, as to what countries that are more prone to earthquakes can can do to minimize damage um, and uh, destruction caused to infrastructure. Yes, yeah, so this is. As I was explaining at, at the beginning, right? You, you have mm. this collision of India, the collision of, of Arabia, this actually leads to quite widespread earthquake risk uh, across much of the interior of, of, of Asia and of, of, of southern Europe. Mm. Um, so the problem is one that is widespread, right, for a start. This is something that adds um, a, a significant challenge, right, for mm. a large proportion of the population in such regions is in some ways exposed to uh, some level of, of, of earthquake risk. Um, we can break down the problem into various types of, of, of constructions, okay? So we have cities. We have cities with, with modern buildings um, constructed with um, concrete, reinforced concrete, so where you have steel reinforcement within there. Um, and the solution there really is to... Is is to make sure that they they are engineered and 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 built properly, right? So mm. this is a something that requires um, government enforcement. Okay, so codes must be in place to make sure that buildings are built strongly. Also, those codes need to be enforced, right? We need inspectors. We need to make sure that um, that that you know that the builders actually do use a certain quantity of steel. They use a certain quality of steel. That they mix mm. the concrete <clears throat> in the right way. And all of these things, if they're not done properly, then, mm. you know, if, if, <laughs> you, they, they, they can actually lead to, to significant weaknesses in the building. So there's yeah. a, 
there's almost a responsibility for everyone there, right? There's a responsibility on the constructors, on the governments, also on the people themselves, right? To demand that these things are, are, are done properly. Mm. Um, and we can make progress in these matters, right? So in the big earthquakes that occurred in, in, in Turkey and, and affected Turkey and Syria in, in, in February, yeah, a lot of the cities close to the earthquake zone, right, many of the buildings, it was a huge earthquake, but they, they withstood that shaking, right? They were built properly and they were built to code. Engineers can solve these things. Hmm. But we also saw that there were failures, right? <clears throat> Sometimes those failures were, were in some ways no one's fault. There was, was Issues that that, that, that that could not have been predicted, but sometimes those buildings were built substandardly, and we saw the effects of those. Right, they mm. collapsed. They shouldn't. Have been. So, you know, we that, that's one issue. But the other issue is with the um, the small houses that people live in 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 rural areas, and and that's also a um, uh, well, it's a different type of problem um, in that these are buildings that are built you know by hand. Um, and often tend to have quite a lot of vulnerability to um, to earthquakes. We've seen in the Afghanistan earthquakes that um, you know you have these these four square walls with a dome on the top, uh, all built from earthen architecture. And what happens is that as, as the shaking starts, that the, the walls kind of move apart from each other, and the dome collapses. And the dome is very very heavy, and that can lead to the very high casualty rates. Um, there are potentially things that can be done to strengthen it. You need to keep the walls together. So you put braces around the walls and, and such things to kind of keep the walls um, square and in shape, which can, might help the, the dome to, to, to be supported. Um, but again, this is something that, you know, there are many buildings of this type across large parts of Asia that use this kind of, of construction. And, and I think it's, it's a big effort to try and make sure, even, you know, simple adaptations that can be used it's, it's actually a big effort to try and get those into into place in resource poor regions. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. You know, as um, you have also mentioned, uh, the Syrian Turkey um, earthquake as well, where you know, more than sixty uh, thousand people, I believe, uh, have died, and. Um, yeah, obviously, you know, uh, while as a Muslim, um, it's uh, we are taught that we need to be cared for the poor, orphans, and the uh, marginalized society as well as um, you know we have been taught um, through the life of the Holy Prophet. But you know, there is also a concern that why can't we just you know uh, minimize that um, that uh, that effect? Um, I mean, if we get to know. Uh, well before the time that um, in certain area that area is going to get hit by the earthquake uh, well earlier before the time uh, I, I I mean we can I believe that we can you know uh, uh, minimize the damage and the destruction um, uh, caused to infrastructure specifically to the to the people um, as you know Islam also tells us that each life is very precious and sacred so isn't it possible for us to know well before the time uh, that uh, you know uh, um, as scientists you know um, they they study the tectonic plates they know how it works so why can't we get to know well before the time uh, that for example, in Turkey, Syria, that they why they were not able to get to know that it's going to hit by the earthquake uh, like a month or a week ago. 
Yes, no, thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, I I, I agree that, you know, there are very simple things in, in, that, that can be done in some ways for mm. preparation, right? And, and, and these can be preparations that can be done often, you know, years in advance, you know, when the building is being built to mm. ensure that it's built properly, um, when the children are at school to make sure they have their education to know what to do in response to an earthquake or how to prepare. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of, in some ways, simple things that can be done, but effort needs to be put in, and, and, and that effort often needs to be put in, you know, early. Um, in terms of you know, when earthquakes will occur, and is there anything we can do to to say, you know, to give warning? Mm. Um, we, we haven't. I mean, it, it's a it's a very sad fact that that we haven't come up with a a reliable indicator. Um, that, that can tell us and, and where an earthquake will occur with that kind of time warning, right? Mm. Um, and so, so sadly, it, it's, it's not something that's, that's been, been possible scientifically so far. Um, but one thing that we can do is that we can say where earthquake risk lies. As, as I've said, it's quite widespread across... Mm-hmm. Across um, Asia and Herat, we can what we can do there. We can go back to historical records, and we can say, well, we know that Herat has been hit by earthquakes before, and so of course it will be in the future, right? You know what has happened in the past will happen in the future. Mm. Um, we could say the same things in 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 many other areas. Sometimes we have to go back really, really far. So um, you know, in in um, Bam. Um, Southeast Iran, 2003. Mm. Um, this is an ancient city, and this, the earthquake that occurred there it was so devastating for the population. Really, was the first earthquake known for about 2,000 years, right? And yet, we can still see evidence for active faulting. We can still read the landscape in this case. We, you know, that that, that can tell us there are active faults. Mm. So one thing that geologists are, you know we can do is we can say look these areas are at risk we can't say when mm-hmm. but we can say these areas are at risk and how and, long and before the the, is, for that going to happen like yeah exactly and so what we can do is we can we can then hopefully using that information we can help to to say so you must prepare mm. okay and 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 as i say there are simple things that can be done whether it's making sure that you know the the, the right kind of steel is used when a building is put up or or making sure that the children at school are, are, are taught how to behave when, when, when an earthquake occurs or, mm. or to give that information back to their parents at home, how you might prepare. So, you know, those things can can, can save lives. Mm. They're, they're, you know, they're simple, but they're, they can be effective. Um, you know, and that preparation is the individual people, it's the constructors, it's the, it's the uh, people who can enforce building codes and, and, and educational strategies. So it, 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 it you know, all, all parts of, 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 of the population have, have a part to play um, in this, but mm. it can lead to, or hopefully can lead to, the preservation of life. Mm. Dr. Professor, do you know, or, um, do you, or do you believe that we are um, very close to that advanced technology, the way we get to know exactly when the earthquake is going to hit that specific area. Yeah, now this is a very interesting question. I think if you ask earthquake scientists, specialists, you know, such as myself, 
that question, um, you will get a range of answers. Some people will say, yes, I think we can. And others will say, I don't think we can at all, right? Mm. I think the, the, the problem is that at the moment we, we don't quite... There's, there's many things, um, let's say, um, because earthquakes are a natural experiment in some ways, right? Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we wait for them, they happen, we study them. It's not like you're working in a lab laboratory and you you know you apply some forces to a material and you see exactly what happens and you understand what 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 the what the behaviors are and you can understand how the early stages of this is so it becomes very hard to understand the physics of the, of the problem i think this is really largely one of the one of the one of the issues we have we don't have many opportunities to do these things very long when earthquakes occur when they're devastating earthquakes we learn something mm. but often only a small increment of, of knowledge so actually fully understand the earthquake process mm. this is something that's happening far beneath the earth's surface happening very slowly probably a very complex process to actually understand something that can give us early warning is, is is seemingly well at the moment it's it's impossible people work towards it people do mm. try and understand the physics of earthquakes and and, and and progress is being made but whether we'll actually ever reach a point where we can you know come up with an early warning system mm. is is not decided. And as I say, some earthquake specialists will be more optimistic, some will be more pessimistic. Um, at the moment, though, what we have is, you know, we don't have an opportunity to do it now, but we do have an opportunity to uh, insist on, you know, on education, on, on, on proper building, all of these things. So, so there are things that can be done rather than waiting, right? Because we could be waiting forever. We don't know. Mm. But we can right now, we can start to put in those mitigation efforts. Yeah? Mm. Uh, Professor, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure for us to have you on the show. Uh, thank it, you very it, much. Peace be on you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure for me. Bye-bye now. Thank you. So that was um, Professor Richard Walker um, of uh, Active Tectonics at the Department of Earth Sciences, University of Oxford. For over 20 years, he has studied earthquakes with emphasis on the mountainous regions from Iran to China. And <clears throat> please um, do contact us at www.voiceofsnam.co.uk or you can call us at or to oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or you can tweet us uh, at voice of islam uk now we are heading uh, towards um eight o'clock news please please do join us after the break uh, where we will you know um do um uh, get uh, get into the second topic but before the second topic here with our second guest of the first segment. Uh, it's time for 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam radio. Um, we are currently discussing um, the Afghanistan earthquakes, third earthquake hits western region in a week. Dear listeners, if you'd like to call in, um, you can do at 020 
or you can tweet us at our voice uh, our voice of islam uk handle um daniel in regards to uh, our segment if you can just mention one or two points in regards to the islamic point um yeah surely uh, i mean uh, we have talked about the earthquakes but um, if uh, it uh, the after- aftermaths of the earthquakes are very really important because those people who are hit by the earthquakes uh, they matter the most and regarding them in islam you know emphasizes a strong um, strong places a strong emphasis on on compassion and mercy and muslims are encouraged to show empathy and care for those you know who are suffering um who are going through any kind of difficulties and um also you know the quran describes the holy prophet sallallahu as rahmatullahi alamin the mercy uh, to the world and mm-hmm. and this mercy not only uh, you know extends to the uh, to to muslims only or to one specific uh, uh, sect rather it you know extends uh, to the uh, to the suffering of all humanity so that's the point um, Indeed, and we'll continue with uh, your points. We just want to introduce our next uh, guest, uh, which is Yusuf Aftab. Mm. Um, Yusuf Aftab is currently serving as the director of Humanity First UK, overseeing fundraising and disaster relief. Um, Brother Yusuf, good morning. Assalamualaikum and welcome to the breakfast show. Waalaikum salam and good morning to you as well. Um, for the areas that are already suffering uh, economically with cold weather conditions approaching as further challenge, um, what will what will the impact be on people in areas that have undergone damage due to natural disasters? So the impact uh, varies from country to country. So if we look at just say we look at UK currently, there's um, you, you would have heard on the news as well with the storms and floods that are going on within the UK naturally people will be hit with their utilities you know flooding impacting their homes um uh flooding and with water uh when it mixes with other elements like sewage and so forth can create um uh, problems um you know in terms of diseases and so forth as well uh, waterborne things and impact the infrastructure of the house so if you just look primarily at the uk then that's the type of impact that it can have if now we look wider um, in terms of the crises and conflicts within the world that are occurring, so, you know, we, we see in Afghanistan, Yemen, and other parts of the Middle East, and then, you know, uh, other European countries like, uh, just say, Ukraine, US, and so forth, are being hit by natural disasters or through conflicts. Um, there are a multitude of th- different things that then, you know, impact people, especially as the winter period kicks in, um, you know, people need, you know, in terms of shelter, food, um, sanitation, um, and uh, uh, these are the key sort of things and, and that are required and sort of medical aid. Um, so during winter, um, you know, if we just take uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries, it becomes very, very cold, extreme temperatures. If people don't have utilities like, uh, you know, um, consistent um, electricity, gas, and so forth, and heat, then there are lots of other types of diseases and, and issues and health type of things that can occur. Mm. Can you explain for our listeners the, the process of providing the disaster relief to areas uh, after natural disasters? How long does it take yeah. uh, for, the, for, for the people to receive the aid? 
Yeah, no problems at all. So I think just just for your um, listeners, it's it's good to understand that whether it's through a natural disaster or a man-made inflicted disaster, what what happens is that um, the first 24 to 48 hours becomes very critical and crucial. Mm. Um, and that's where you have teams called INSRAG in terms of the international search and rescue teams. Um, either they're local, um, that they have the abilities, or from international support, they go out and provide support. So if you were hit with an earthquake... Um, or a tsunami, or, or, or some landslide, and so forth. But generally, just say predominantly earthquakes that hit um, buildings and so forth are, um, uh, you know, impacted the most. Uh, people then are caught and vulnerable. That's where you you try to conserve and preserve uh, human life as much as possible to try and save people. Um, after that sort of period, what you then find is locally, and then with international support. Um, teams will come across to provide um, aid. So that will be medical aid um, if you have been uh, impacted uh, health-wise. Um, uh, so you'll get the support there. Psychosocial support is very, very important. Um, if there is a separation of uh, children, women and so forth, so if they've lost their parents, there will be agencies that will be providing support to, to children that become orphans and because one of the big things that happens unfortunately uh, in disasters as well is that um you know people will take uh uh opportunities within this situation and and uh, children will get trafficked women etc and so forth so you have to be very very mindful in that regard as well and then you've got aid like you know shelters so temporary shelters through um uh tents and tent cities etc created or temporary sort of homes modulated um, that are created as well um, and then food um, becomes very important and sanitation in terms of ensuring that uh, you've got the right um, you know toilet facilities and those type of things because um, you know things like cholera things like um, other diseases can occur typhoid and so forth you know uh, waterborne airborne type of diseases that can impact on people so you have to just be mindful on those type of things and, and provide your support and aid. And this is where Humanity First, um, not only in the UK, but international as a family, are able to go out and support and provide assistance along with its uh, local partners. Indeed. Um, but Yusuf, I just want to mention for the listeners that Islamic uh, teachings promote charity as a means of availing suffering. Muslims are required to give a portion of their wealth to those in need. They're also encouraged to give voluntary charity support um, humanitarian causes. So this financial support is intended to assist the less fortunate and provide relief in in times of of distress. Um, Can you give us an insight into what Humanity First UK has been doing um, to aid regions of the world that have suffered from earthquakes, please? Yeah, so Humanity First, uh, uh, you know, again, for your uh, listeners, you know, it's been going on for over 26 years. Um, It's the brainchild of... uh, um, uh, the then Caliph Hazim Zahir Ahmed, or who was the worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim Association, and then uh, current Caliph Hazim Zahir Ahmed, who has been spearheading, guiding, and instructing in terms of how to nurture uh, uh, in in terms of and preserve life. So, um, you know, it's our Islamic principles are very very clear in terms of that you you need to fulfil the rights of God. To, uh, to fulfil the rights of God, you need to fulfil the rights of people. 
So being able to uh, serve people through humanitarian assistance is very important. That becomes a, a very strong Islamic uh, principle. So um, Humanity First, uh, uh, apart from fundraising internally through its members and so forth, externally we uh, also put out uh, um, appeals, just like any other NGO will do. However, the beauty of Humanity First is that um, it has very low administrative costs. So if we look at comparisons to bigger organizations who, who let me say, do great work, so Oxfam, you Save the Children, uh, MSF, etc., um, you, you will find, uh, if you're looking at their accounts and so forth, that you know, uh, 40 to 60% of money goes towards administrative costs. Now, with Humanity First, certainly it occurs, but only um, 7 to 9% of that or even less goes to awards administrative costs. So what you're getting is greater than 90% of the funds are actually supporting the people on the ground at the grassroots level and being able to impact them. So um, our dollar, our pound, you can say, uh, stretches much further and wider than many of the other organizations. So giving to organizations like ourselves then you know goes above and beyond and and that money is utilized um to microfinance things um in local countries to support and aid people and also for us to provide anything that we need to get from western countries and import that across to local countries if those things are not available And, and a lot of that aid is through medical food shelter education um clean water and, uh, you know, uh, doing uh, very different types of uh, medical aid and operations as well. So, you know, it's very easy to go on. You go on to hfuk.org forward slash donate, and you'll be able to see the multitude of uh, appeals and programs that we're doing. And, and every pound counts to be able to make an impact in somebody's life. Indeed. Um, Brother Yusuf, thank you very much for being here with us today. Uh, for answering our questions and we pray for you and for the rest of the team uh, for all the good work you're doing for all those in need as well so thank you very much thank you for having me on so that was brother um, Yusuf Attab who is currently serving as um, the director for Humanity First UK Um, Daniel coming back to you uh, as we were discussing the Islamic points if you can just um, continue with because yeah, sure, you, you had a point we had a point that, that I had to stop you on as well yeah sure you know there there's a very beautiful um hadith uh, or the saying of the holy prophet sallallahu uh, uh, he very beautifully explained uh, something um, uh, by narrating a, a parable so in one hadith it is narrated, uh, narrated that on the day of judgment allah will say that that i was hungry and you did not feed me I was thirsty and you did not give me water and I was sick and you did not meet or comfort me. Uh, Upon this, uh, those being addressed will ask that, O our Lord, when was it that you were hungry and we did not feed you? When was it that you were thirsty and we did not quench your thirst? And when was it that you were sick and we did not comfort you? So in reply, God Almighty will say that uh, a person dear to me was suffering in this way and you did not show any compassion or kindness to him. To show love to him would actually have been to show love to me. 
Similarly to another community, um, Allah the Almighty will say, I thank you as you showed love and compassion to me when I was hungry, you fed me and when I was thirsty, you quenched my thirst. The members of that community will ask, O oh, our Lord, when did we serve you in that way? We did not know ourselves. So in, in response, Allah will say that when you showed love and compassion to a person dear to me, you were actually manifesting your love for me. So, uh, you know, a very beautiful parable, a very beautiful example, um, the which the Holy Master, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessing will be upon him, you know, gave us to understand the uh, sanctity um sacred um sanctity of a life uh, which it holds so um, obviously we need to if we get any chance um we need to show support and compassion for such people indeed um thank you for that daniel uh, we've come to the end of the first segment um but before we finish i have a small clip which i'd like to play uh, of the the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim Yeah, sure. Community. Just just one more, one last thing that uh, regarding okay, sure. this, the, I I just want to say that there are different NGOs working in Afghanistan, like uh, Doctors Without Borders, Save the uh, Children, and um, Islamic um, Relief. Yeah. So people can go to their websites and donate as well for Indeed. such people. Indeed. Thank you. Um, so this small clip that I want to play is is of the, the current head of the Muslim community, Azam Izzah Masroor Ahmed's uh, speech during the 2021 Humanity First Conference, um, speaking on the topic of helping those facing adversity and those in need. Repeatedly, the Holy Quran has instructed Muslims to help and aid those who are vulnerable or in need, irrespective of their caste, creed, or color. Furthermore, there are countless traditions and sayings of the Holy Prophet that illustrate how, the spend, uh, how he spent his entire life serving mankind and striving to inculcate the same spirit of sympathy for others within his followers. Certainly, the Holy Prophet was an everlasting source of mercy for mankind. And through his blessed, uh, blessed words and deeds, he shone an illuminating and everlasting light upon the magnificent teachings of Islam and demonstrated that serving mankind is an inherited and truly fundamental part of our faith. An Amr ibn Shu'ayb radiyallahu anhu an abihi an jaddihi qal qala rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam inna Allah yuhib an yura athar ni'matihi ala abdih It is narrated by Hazrat Amr bin Shu'ayb radiyallahu anhu from his father from his grandfather who reported, the Holy Prophet ﷺ stated, Indeed, Allah loves to see the results of his favours upon his servant. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. 
understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to the Voice of Islam radio. We are going to the second segment, um, which is bridging the gap how robotics and AI are reshaping the NHS. The NHS is facing an, an unprecedented crisis with soaring waiting lists and strikes, promoting doctors to advocate for the integration of robotics and AI as a solution. Medically assisting robots are already in use within some hospitals and have shown to save, some, save time and help hospital efficiency resulting in better patient care. Doctors say the healthcare service needs to fully embrace robotics and AI be fit for the future. Dear listeners, if you'd like to call in and speak to us, the number is 020-8687-7878 or you can tweet us at our Voice of Islam UK handle. So, um, Daniel, there are advantages, um, obviously, of of this new scheme of uh, integrating robotics and AI into healthcare. Um, and AI has a, a, a better ability to analyze health-related data fast and accurately. This can help medical professionals uh, reach a diagnosis a lot more quickly and allow them to perform their duties more more effectively. Unlike humans, AI systems can process vast amounts of medical information in mere seconds rapidly identifying patterns, anomalies, and potential health issues. This accelerated data analysis not only expedites the diagnostic process, but also empowers medical professionals to make well-informed um, to, to, to make well-informed decisions promptly. With the assistance of uh, AI, medical practitioners can 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 um, access a wealth of medical knowledge and research, leading to more accurate and evidence-based diagnosis. This not only enhances the efficiency of healthcare delivery, but also reduces the chances of diagnostic errors. Um, as a result, medical medical professionals can focus on tailoring treatments, providing personalized care, and making crucial medical decisions, ultimately improving patient outcomes and the overall effectiveness of healthcare services. Um, um, Wise will continue with this, uh, but right now we have with us our first guest of this segment, um, um, Professor Soren Holm. Uh, he's a doctor and philosopher, um, He's a professor of bioethics, uh, medic, uh, medical ethics at the University of Manchester and does research into the ethical and legal issues uh, raised by the introduction of artificial intelligence in the healthcare um, system. Uh, professor, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning and peace be on you. Good morning. Um, professor, what are the implications of of healthcare robots potentially uh, displacing healthcare professionals um, from their job, um, and how could you know we resolve this issue? I think that we are a long time from the time when healthcare robots will really 
displace healthcare professionals. The first robots we are going to see in healthcare are going to be care robots, or the, the ones that most of us are going to see are going to be care robots. So these will be robots that do low-level nursing tasks or that people have in their home for the elderly. Uh, and then over time, we will see the development of more advanced robots that can actually do high-level nursing tasks or medical tasks. But that's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. uh, and given that we lack a lot of care staff in the UK, at least initially, the robots are not going to displace anyone. They're going to primarily free uh, care staff to do more advanced tasks than they're doing now. Mm -hmm. And Professor, how do we rank the importance of um, human decisions in comparison to a decision by a robot or AI-based system? Um, especially if they are in, in conflict? I think this is one of the big problems when we are implementing artificial intelligence in healthcare, how we get the balance right between the advice we get from the AI system and the medical decision maker. Uh, we know from research done here in the UK and elsewhere in Europe that patients really want their doctors or other healthcare professionals to be the ones that make the final decisions about their treatment, partly because they want that human interaction. Uh, but there are lots of situations where decision-making is very time-pressured, for instance, in uh, accident and emergencies departments. And there it is very likely that if a doctor, especially a junior doctor, gets advice from an AI system, uh, they're very likely to follow that advice. Uh, so we will come into situations where the advice is wrong, because even though sort of when we implement artificial intelligence in healthcare, we will do it at a point where it's is better than the average doctor, but it won't be perfect. Uh, it will still make errors in diagnosis or treatment advice. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, in some circumstances, it is likely that doctors and other healthcare professionals will follow that advice. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor, you have said that uh, they will make errors um, but the question arises here is that who is then responsible for errors or harms or negative outcomes in robot-assisted healthcare? And and then how would liability be de determined in these cases then? Well, at the moment, if we're talking healthcare in, in a hospital, uh, the liability will always fall on a human being. Uh, so it will be the doctor or the nurse who followed the AI advice or allowed the robot to do certain things uh, that will have the liability. And 
of course, in, in the NHS, uh, doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals are insured by the organization, so it's not their personal liability. Uh, but in the future, as especially robots become more autonomous and do more tasks on their own in healthcare, we will have to find new ways of allocating liability to these robots. And partly, I think, that because we're going to see this not only in healthcare but elsewhere, the first robots we're going to see are probably, most of us are going to see, are probably self-driving cars. Uh, and there you have very similar liability problems. Uh, who is responsible if a self-driving car causes an accident? Uh, and we will have to solve those and ensure that those people who are harmed can get the compensation that they need. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I believe that many companies, you know, have they have started um, carried out different um, tests on um, self-driving cars. So um, that very first step has been taken uh, in regards to uh, robot-assisted um, AIs, and um, I think we are we are advancing at a very rapid pace. Um, uh, where we gonna see? I think I believe that um, the robot-assisted uh, systems into the healthcare um, very widely uh, in, in in recent years, in coming recent years, yeah. And uh, Professor, what is your opinion on on investing into the development of healthcare robots um, rather than you know uh, traditional healthcare resources and services? Well, I think that in principle it's a good idea to invest in healthcare robots. If if we're talking about, for instance, the care robots that are going to come, uh, it is. If, if we could have a robot uh, taking food around in the hospital ward to the patients, checking that the patients have eaten it, uh, taking tablets around, uh, it, it would do it more effectively than a human being could do and with more precision. Uh, and as long as we're careful about how we're implementing them, that should free up the nurses who currently do these jobs uh, to do higher level nursing jobs and uh, help patients in other ways. Uh, but it is, of course, a, a resource allocation problem. We have to be sort of careful that we get the balance between humans and, and robots right because one of the things we know for certain is that patients, when they want to interact with human beings, uh, old people uh, who are at home but need care, uh, don't just want to have a robot caring for them. They also want to interact with human beings. And it's important that we take that into account when we plan our services hmm. and um, professor just lastly um, what measures should be 
should be in place to educate patients and um, healthcare professionals about the capabilities and limitations of healthcare robots. You know, as we have talked about um, the limitations, all the errors they might make um, uh, the robot-assisted AI. So, um, so the so we need to you know uh, educate patients and um, healthcare professionals. But what measures should be in place to educate them? And so that, you know, um, the blind trust in technology can be prevented. Yeah, I think the first in, in the education of healthcare professionals and training of healthcare professionals, it will be increasingly important to emphasize that the AI systems and the robots that will be introduced are not infallible, that they can make errors and that it is all right to disagree with the AI system if you are fairly confident that it has made an error, you shouldn't follow it. Uh, I think in relation to patients, I think, again, it's very important to see this as part of a shared decision-making process. Uh, just as we don't want doctors and other healthcare professionals to make decisions about us without consulting us. We shouldn't let robots or AI systems make these decisions. So we need to make it clear also to patients that it's perfectly all right if an AI system has been involved in your diagnosis or the treatment choice uh, to raise questions, uh, to ask, well, why has it said that I should have this treatment? Why is this treatment better than some other treatment? Uh, the fact that sort of a an AI system has said that it is is not in itself enough. Uh, you have a right to have, to get the same kind of explanation you would get from a healthcare professional. Mm. Um, Professor, um, thank you very much um, uh, for being on the show. Um, it's a pleasure for us to have you on the show. Um, we will be looking forward uh, in the future to l to hear from you as well. Um, thank you very much. Uh, may peace be on you. Thank you. Thank you. So that uh, was uh, Professor Soren Holm, um, the doctor and philosopher. Uh, he is a professor of bioethics, medical ethics at the University of Manchester and does research into the ethical and legal issues raised by the introduction of artificial intelligence in the healthcare system. Uh, with this, we will move on to the Islamic uh, perspective and... Um, you know, when we look into the Islamic angle uh, for this specific topic, um, um, if we uh, we can see that um, the uh, there are various uh, prophecies regarding the modern technology, which has been mentioned in the Holy Quran. Mm, indeed, and um, some are some of the examples, like um, in chapter forty-one, verse twenty-one. Uh, it is mentioned that their skins will bear witness against them as to what they have been doing. 
And, uh, you know, we can see that the fingerprint system at borders or crimi criminal investigation cells or anywhere else, um, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, um, broadly used in mm. the system. So um, it proves the, you know, fulfillment of this chronic prophecy that says that their skins will bear witness against them as to what they have been doing. And, um, you know, we, we can see that uh, whenever... Uh, for example, there's a record of a criminal, uh, specific crim uh, criminal, uh, when he has been, you know, uh, catched and they yeah, put the fingerprint uh, into the system mm. and it matches with that specific um, um, fingerprints. They get to know that he is that very person, whether it is used in um, investigation cells or immigration uh, centers but the point is that that prophecy which has been mentioned in the Holy Quran has been fulfilled. And it has been mentioned 14 or 1500 years ago. That's the, you know, uh, beauty uh, of this whole thing, which, you know, beautifies the prophecy itself. And again, if we see regarding the um, genetic engineering, um, it has been mentioned in the Holy Quran that uh, they will alter Allah's creation. And the mm. Holy Quran has prophesied the, you know, plastic surgery, genetic engineering, and cloning in the short and concise sentence. You know, no one can imagine and uh, think about it um, like 1400 years ago, 1500 years ago, that such thing could, you know, can come into existence. So, um, indeed, and and you know. I just want to mention another Islamic point, which is that the Holy Prophet of Islam, yeah, he he said that I am with the weak because aiding the weak and poor is a means of reaching Allah the Almighty. So Islam actually encourages actions that bring about benefit and and well-being for uh, individuals and society. Certainly, it can be helped through the modern technology which we are talking about. Exactly. Um, moving on, we have uh, another clip um, from the address of His Holiness, Hazem Mizam um at the inauguration of the Nasser Hospital in Guatemala. Um, so do listen to, let, let's listen to this uh, quick audio clip. Time and again, the Holy Quran has instructed Muslims to serve mankind and to fulfill the needs of those who are suffering or are deprived in any way. It requires Muslims to be selfless and consumed by a love for others. It requires us to be ever ready to make sacrifices for the sake of the peace and well-being of other people. For example, in chapter 3, verse 111, Allah the Almighty has stated that a Muslim is he who enjoys what is good and forbids evil. <coughs> Here, the Quran explains that true Muslims are people who promote goodness, stay away from evil and injustice, and encourage others to do good deeds as well. Only a person who has a sincere love for humankind and feels the anguish of God's creation can be caring and sympathetic in the way the Quran desires. Such profound love for humanity is only possible if your heart is pure 
and free from malice and selfishness. In chapter 2, verse 84 of the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty instructs Muslims to speak kindly at all times, to be considerate of the feelings of other people, and to love and protect vulnerable members of society, such as orphans, children, or those living in poverty or destitution. Thereafter, in chapter 51, verse 20, the Holy Quran states that the hallmark of a true Muslim is that he should care for all of God's creation and should comfort and support those in need, whether they seek their help or not. That was um, His Holiness's address at Nasser Hospital inauguration in Guatemala, outlining the teachings of Islam with regards to helping, um, regardless of their background or religion, and that the hallmark of a true believer is their, is their service to, 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 to mankind and Allah's creation. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given man knowledge to utilize for the betterment of, of humanity. Um, dear listeners, we are going to proceed with our um, next guest, who is um, Dure Tahir. Dure Tahir is a um, physiotherapist who has worked as a disability uh, analyst and has widely experienced the use of AI in the workplace. She now works remotely and has experience with artificial intelligence with regards to her field of phys- uh, um, physiotherapy. Um, Good morning, uh, Aslam Nikum, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning, Walaikum for having me. Can you tell us a bit more on how um, artificial intelligence is being used in in um, physiotherapy, please? Um, right. Yes. Yeah. So, physiotherapy generally. Before we start with how AI, AI is used, physiotherapy is access, plan, and implement rehabilitative programs that improve or restore human motor functions, maximize movement and release pain syndrome, treat or prevent physical challenges associated with injuries, diseases or impairments. This is like an overview of what physiotherapy on its own is. AI technology can be utilized in the diagnosis and assessment processes by assisting the therapist to make the process easier and more efficient. So the idea is to get you know, quicker results so the, the time taken in the assessment done, the diagnosis done, this is really reduced by the AI. It can also be used to efficiently track patient data to be used in predictive analytics and create optimal treatment plans. It can provide useful technologies that will allow patients to receive care from the comfort of their home. So there are a lot of conditions that patients are not able to make it to the clinics. And at the same time, with all of the waiting lists, there has been a triage put up so we all know about chat GPT. It's a, it's a virtual assistant to support patients to manage their appointments or send data from telemedicine devices that monitor their health at home. So generally, this is what it's being used for. A lot of um, services have started using chatbots to provide real-time triage to patients using evidence-based recommendations to advise them on their next steps. So that has really you know, been effective in that aspect. <clears throat> Do you think these these technologies will help um, eradicate or uh, you know the existing health inequalities uh, and who has access to them? 
Um, so again, it's, gener it's generally everywhere now. We wouldn't want to overuse something because there would be the good side and the bad side. Hmm. So I know ChatGPT has been used. There are other um, apps that are being used for um, appointments and you know, services rendered. A lot of waiting list um, timings have reduced. It can enhance the role of the physiotherapist, but it can't um, replace them entirely. So the human touch Physiotherapy itself is more of like a contact kind of um, healthcare. So it we can't use AI to eradicate that. We can't use AI to completely, hmm. you know, get rid of the human. So the critical thinking, communication skills that are essential, these can't be like completely provided by AI. These are the components that we need the human input from. And and this is exactly the reply given by a computer about this. So hmm. that's an insightful reply. The idea is to try and help basically not completely um, moving to AI because it's been seen that in healthcare, speaking um, specifically for healthcare, AI does not have all those security and, you know, um, safe, safety aspects in place. So right now, whatever is being used is those um, consent and um, being allowed, um, you know, those um, information we take of can we use your personal data and all of that. Mm. So that is all we have at the moment to render the facility safely so we do need more so till we get that till and if we get that we have to you know use it side by side one concern is that uh, healthcare workers may may become overly dependent on on ai to carry out their tasks do you believe this is this a valid concern personally i wouldn't agree i have seen people work on it i know there are people so it's, it's like a mix now there are people that believe in their own work hmm. you know the physical hands-on working is more effective yes ai has helped reduce you know has made the work more efficient you can easily get the data of the patients out help with you know putting on um, appointments but then while treating a patient if there's a red flag which is meant to be seen very quickly not um, being checked by the ai as quickly as a human would i know we say the computers are faster but there are certain things that it won't be able to pick up there that's where it becomes a problem so I know it's easier, more efficient, and it has provided useful technology, but I wouldn't say it can completely um, take over. Again, the human touch, the critical thinking, all of that needs to be looked at as well. Can we truly attribute actions produced by a device to a human patient and maintain the cons concept of uh, autonomy? I wouldn't say so. Because, um, so we need to, again, look at it from a complete aspect so there are professionals it's assumed that you can get answers for everything but again the computer itself is saying that as a computer i wouldn't be able to give you all the information you need hmm. but when you look at a patient it's not only about one condition and um, one plus one equals to two there all there's always something else that you might need to look at and a computer which you put certain information in the other ones that left out won't be looked at so i wouldn't agree with that Nirita, thank you very much for, for joining us and giving us your time this morning. Um, may God the Almighty help you in all your work and all your endeavours. Thank you very um, much. So that was Dure um, Tahir, a uh, physiotherapist who has worked as a disability analyst and has widely experienced the use of AI in the workplace. She now works remotely and has experience with artificial intelligence with regards to her field of uh, physiotherapy. As humans begin to closely brush shoulders with, with uh, artificial technology uh, at an astonishing speed, researchers from Imperial College London have suggested setting up 
regulating frameworks with which governments can minimize unintended consequences of our relationship with, with technology. Um, their suggestions were published in uh, Nature Machine Allegiance, Intelligence. His Holiness, um, the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, advised, you need to make sure that there is no misuse of artificial intelligence. The information available on it in the form of books, e-books, audiobooks, etc. are not misused. And if there is such an instance, then how would it be counted? You need to reflect upon this as well. Advising to be proactive about the potential harms of AI, His Holiness stated, you must assess it from, its, from, from this perspective as well. It should not be the case that once an incident has incurred, then we begin to measure, uh, then we begin to take measures against it. Uh, rather, we ought to take precautionary measures from the start. Uh, and also during a meeting of the German Ahmadi University graduates with His Holiness, in response to a question, he said that if everything is left for the artificial intelligence to do, humans would have nothing else. Nothing, nothing, humans would have nothing, would, would not have anything to do. Thus, that will cause regression and, and stagnation in the human in intellect. Islamic ethics calls for um, ethical decision-making, uh, which includes considerations of justice, fairness and, and equality. Uh, using AI and robotics in healthcare should be done in a way that ensures fair access to medical services and does not um, discriminate against any group um, in islam every individual is believed to possess inherent dignity and worth the use of of uh, ai and robotics should respect the dignity and privacy of patients um, and healthcare professionals in one of his um, university lectures hazam mizamasur has stated that Whilst human intelligence has been utilized to rapidly progress in technological and scientific advancements, it had also on occasion been used as a force for evil and destruction. Hence, it is important to be very cautious of using such robotics in healthcare and ensure that they are not being used for wrongful purposes and only for medical usage. In chapter 3, verse 111 of the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty has, has stated that a Muslim is he who enjoys what is good and forbids evil so here the Holy Quran explains that true Muslims are people who promote goodness stay away from evil and injustice and encourage others to do good deeds as well in fact Allah the Almighty guided the Holy Prophet of Islam to set new standards for service to humanity and advised that it is the key to nearness to Allah as well. He also declared that one who is not grateful to mankind is not grateful to Allah. Despite all the advancements in, in science, one should remember that the end of all physical life is death, inevitable and final. First of all, um, Allah the Almighty has attributed the ordaining of death to himself. He states, We have ordained death for you and we cannot prevent. Chapter 56, 
61. Dear listeners, we have come towards the end of um, today's show. I would like to I would like to thank our uh, esteemed guests for joining us, for giving us their time, and for answering our questions. Um, I'd like to thank our producers, uh, Barira Shamsi Isha Ahmed, and researchers Nuzat Nabila Komal, uh, my co-host Daniel Ahmed, and our tech team, uh, Brother Zishan. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, we invite you to stay tuned for more exciting episodes and incredible guests in our tomorrow morning show where we'll be discussing increasing number of people waiting 18 months for NHS care, basic human rights, why innocent civilians deserve access to humanitarian aid. We'd love to hear from you, dear listeners. Keep those messages and requests coming uh, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.